growing up, my sister and I were shipped off by our parents to the Pacific Northwest for three to four weeks to visit extended family members. These weeks were spent uh, in great fun. Many bright first-time memories were made there. For example, the first time that we ever picked fresh blueberries. We, yes, amen, everyone who, blueberries are my favorite, oh my goodness. We filled buckets and buckets and buckets and gallons and gallons, and I wish I could say I was joking, but we literally filled the entire truck bed in the back filled with blueberries, all the while gorging ourselves so much that our fingers and our tongues were stained purple at the end. Or the first time I learned how to pick the perfect skipping stone, smooth, flat, round, and then proceeded to learn how to skip it across the pond. And then, because my cousin didn't think that was epic enough, learned how to skip the stone using a slingshot. Pretty cool. <laughs> or the first time I ever caught a fish. Now, this is a highly debated topic in my family, specifically between my sister and I. Does it really count as catching a fish if when I happen to release the line, the hook just so happened to land on a fish and hook its side as it was swimming by. My sister says, no, it doesn't count, it's just luck. And I say, yes, it counts, luck caught me the fish. <laughs> I can confirm what Pastor Chris has said all of these years, that the Pacific Northwest truly is God's country. Amen. Along with San Diego, but that's a side note. <laughs> My time in the Pacific Northwest also marked the first time that I, I ever remember the Holy Spirit being mentioned in church. I was about eight or nine years old and my sister was about six or seven years old and we were visiting our family up in Oregon and on this particular morning we were out on the lawn playing Uno when my uncle comes out and says, we're going to church. To which I immediately say, but it's Sunday. My uncle says, yes, you go to church on Saturday. We go to church on Sunday. And my little eight-year-old self was like, oh, okay, we're going to church. Hopped in the car, go to church. We're sitting in Sunday school, and I'm trying very hard to figure out the differences, but my little eight-year-old self can't discern any. There is music, and there is a memory verse, and there's a lesson, and there's a craft, and there's snacks, and it was great. We then, after Sunday school, make our way to the congregation, the sanctuary where church begins and the announcements were made and greeting happens and the music begins. And other than it being a livelier group than I was used to, it felt like normal church. And then a woman steps from her pew into the center aisle, lets out a loud cry of hallelujah, starts shaking violently and speaking gibberish and a whole crowd surrounds her and I think, oh my goodness, this is what a heart attack looks like. Deeply concerned, I pull on my aunt's sleeve and I point to the woman and I say, what's wrong with her? Is she okay? To which my aunt responds, okay, of course she's okay. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. And my little eight-year-old self gets wide-eyed, and I distinctly remember thinking, I never want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
This type of expression and appreciation for the Holy Spirit is not one that many of us Adventists are used to. In fact, if we are to be honest with ourselves as a group, we tend to be a little bit more restrained and reserved when we engage with the Holy Spirit. But for many of our Christian family, they prefer to engage with the Spirit in vivid and grand and large ways. And oftentimes, they will point to the book of Acts as the foundation and tradition for relating to the Spirit in this way. And truth be told, friends, the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is truly quite remarkable, even sensational sometimes. The storyteller in Acts describes a gathering of the Jewish people, of many nations and of many languages, awaiting the Pentecost. And as they gather there, the Holy Spirit shows up. First as a raging wild wind, and then secondly as fire shaped like tongues, slowly drifting down and alighting on people, and then languages. People speak and out comes a different language, and people hear and in comes a different language. And all of this happens, the storyteller of Acts says, because the people are filled with the Holy Spirit. And for many of us, myself included, we hear this story and we think, I don't know how to relate to these otherworldly events. I can't remember the last time I saw the Holy Spirit show up like a raging wind. I don't remember the last time that the Holy Spirit showed up like flaming tongues of fire and landed on me and all of a sudden my friends and I were able to speak 50 different languages. I don't remember the last time the Holy Spirit showed up and works and wonders and miracles happened. And we look at this and we are confused and we shift in our seats uncomfortably because it is evident that the storyteller of Acts is emphatically explaining that the Holy Spirit does indeed move and the Spirit moves in people. And it begs us to ask the question, what does it look like today when we are filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it look like when true partnership with the Spirit and humanity takes place? For this, I find myself surprisingly drawn to the story in the beginning of Acts 6. Acts 6 tells the story of the first Christian community. Previously in Acts, the storyteller describes the community as sort of a utopian-esque gathering of people. Says that they are of one heart and one soul and that there is no belongings, personal belongings among them, but rather they share all of their resources and all of their skills. There are no needy among them. There are no poor among them. They spend their days at the temple sharing the gospel together. And in the evenings, they commune with each other and break bread together. And honestly, it sounds a little bit like a Thomas Kincaid painting. Too good to be true. <laughs> but here in Acts 6, we get a little bit of a different story. The veil is pulled back a little bit and we're let in on some of the nitty gritty aspects of community. Community that we are, aspects that we are a little bit more familiar with here today. 
the Christian community at the beginning of Acts is made up almost entirely of Jewish converts. But in this Jewish convert group, there are two subgroups. There are the Hebrews and there are the Hellenists. The Hebrews are the Jewish Christian converts that speak Aramaic, which means that they have grown up in the heart of the Israel community. In this community is Judea, Jerusalem, Galilee, and because they have grown up in the heart of this community, they are the ones that often hold the positions of leadership. So, for example, all 12 of Jesus' disciples, which are now the leaders of the Christian community, are Aramaic-speaking Jews. And then you have the Hellenists. And the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews. They are the ones who have lived beyond the borders of Israel. They have lived in Gentile communities, and therefore, rather than Aramaic being their first language, Greek is their first language. And because they are distant from the community, the hub of the Jewish community, and distant from the traditions and the customs and the languages, these Hellenists are often looked down upon and overlooked by the Hebrews or the Aramaic-speaking Jews. This tension is not absent from the community in Acts 6. Acts 6 begins with the Hellenists approaching the disciples saying, you are leaving out, you are forgetting, you are neglecting our most vulnerable members. Our Hellenist widows are not being given food, are not being served in the mealtimes. And to their credit, the disciples hear this complaint and they take it seriously. They gather the entire Christian community together and they say, beginning in Acts 6-2, it is not right that we, the disciples, should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, the disciples, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. And the early Christian community hears this suggestion from the disciples and they pick seven men of good standing, full of the spirit, and interestingly enough, all Greek speaking, to take on this task. And the community breathes a sigh of relief and they say, it's good. And if I'm being completely transparent, the first time that I read these seven verses, I was deeply troubled. I find it troublesome that the 12 disciples can stand in front of the entire Christian community and say that it is not right to neglect the word of God in order to care for the neglected. I am uneasy that the disciples proclaim that serving the word is separate from serving people. I am bothered that the Christian community hears all of this and they agree. How is it that the disciples have spent year after year learning at the feet of Jesus, watching him do ministry, only to reach this conclusion? The same storyteller of Acts is also the same storyteller of the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke, you get story after story after story 
of Jesus caring for, spending time with, offering a seat at the table to those who have been pushed to the outside, overlooked, forgotten, and simply labeled as other. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' ministry is one of serving people alongside the gospel. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus declares that the community, the kingdom of God belongs to people like little children. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus attends to values and works alongside women. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard simply because he dares to break bread with tax collectors and sinners. In the gospel of Luke, Jesus extends his ministry beyond the Jewish community into the Gentile community. He saves a man filled with legions of demons. He heals a a servant of a Roman centurion. In the gospel of Luke, the storyteller of Acts makes it abundantly clear that Jesus' ministry of serving the word is absolutely and completely 100% inseparable from serving people. And so it begs the question, what is happening in Acts 6? Because we know that this same storyteller can't possibly be saying that serving God is different from serving people. Well, you see in Acts 6, seven people filled to the brim with the Holy Spirit are given the task of caring for the neglected in their community. All the while, the disciples are supposed to be focusing on serving the word. It is interesting to note, though, that the next few chapters of Acts, although the storyteller does share about people giving the word and sharing the gospel, it is not done by any of the disciples, but rather it is members of the seven people chosen to care for the neglected that are giving the word. The storyteller of Acts launches into the story of Stephen pulled in front of the Jewish leaders giving a remarkable, very long sermon. And then it follows with Philip preaching the word to Samaria and then to a eunuch, both of these men filled with the spirit and chosen to serve the marginalized in their community. And we have to ask ourselves, what does this mean? Does this mean that they have neglected their duty to serve the marginalized? I would argue no. In fact, for the first time since Jesus' ascension, you have two people who are going out into their community and sharing the gospel to people beyond the Jewish community. In Stephen's speech to the Jewish leaders during his trial, he shares how in history, God has moved outside of Judaism. God has moved in Mesopotamia. God has moved in Haran. God has moved in Egypt, signifying that God will and can move beyond the Jewish boundaries. And then there's Philip, who spends time in the midst of the Jewish rivals of Samaria, healing and teaching and comforting. And only after they're converted do the disciples show up. And then Philip preaching and baptizing a eunuch, which was remarkable and unheard of. 
because a eunuch was considered broken and unwhole and therefore unfit to be fully God's people. These two men full of the spirit and having spent time with the marginalized, having spent time offering seats at the table to the underprivileged and the overlooked members of their community have come to realize the most scandalizing thing about the gospel isn't about who we keep out, but who it lets in. Through their time serving those on the margins, through their time caring for the overlooked, through their time recognizing the human, the human in those who have been dehumanized. These seven men full of the spirit have set the Jesus movement on an astonishing path, a path that calls the Christian community to throw open the doors, to bring more seats to the table, to serve a warm and delicious meal and to sit across someone who is different from them, who would normally be labeled as other and instead is known as human and family. You see these seven verses, short verses, are often overlooked and dismissed as, oh, well, the community had a disagreement, but they solved it, yay. But instead, these verses tell the story of a dramatic change in the Jesus movement. It shows us that while the Holy Spirit is indeed a sensational, fantastical whirlwind of a presence, that true partnership with the Spirit, true embodiment of the Spirit, begins when we look at someone vastly different from ourselves and say, I see you, and I take care of you because you are family. You see, it is only by opening ourselves up to the stories of the marginalized, by seeing the human in those who are different from us, by serving the people so often forgotten that we begin to understand the depth and breadth of the gospel story. And it is only then that we can truly teach it. I wanna show you a video. It's a lighthearted, fun video. I find myself often in my spare time obsessively watching and addicted to a YouTube channel it's called Hi Ho Kids. Don't know if any of you have heard of it. You've probably seen it on Facebook. Just don't realize what you're watching. In this channel, they have a series called Kids Meet. And these kids of all different ages and races get to meet all of these different kinds of people, from a Holocaust survivor to a bank robber. All sorts of different people. And they get to ask them questions and, and learn from them and hear their different stories. The video I'm about to show you are some of the best moments of these, of these series of videos. It's lighthearted, it's fun, but as you watch it, I invite you to see if maybe this isn't what embodiment of the spirit can look like. What kind of magic do you do? You know, I do a lot of close-up style magic and I also have a stage show as well. I do some mind reading. Mind reading? Mm-hmm, yeah. Don't be scared, it's okay, I'm not doing it now. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> 
What did you guys think when you saw me walking? You, you look like a pirate. Do you guys notice anything interesting about me? You smile a lot. <laughs> Do you notice anything about me? <laughs> it's not gonna be weird. Okay. <laughs> that you don't have hair. Yeah, you don't have any hair. So what are we here to talk about today? We are here to talk about me as a person with a disability. We are here to talk about Tourette syndrome. Moscow District. I'm a bird survivor. It's gonna be a genie. I know it. You're gonna be a genie. I'm not a genie, actually. Are you a Wonder Woman? I'm not Wonder Woman. Who are you? I'm a contortionist. Uh. Have you guys ever seen a magician before? No. no, I haven't seen one, but I have seen myself do some magic tricks. Wow. Do you think I'd be good at football? You can't walk. Why would I? Mm. Good point. I can't pick you up. Oh, him? I mean, no. <laughs> what did the jail look like? Ooh, well, it kind of looked like this. Uh, only <laughs> four walls. Jail is behind bars with policemen holding weapons. Yay. So what happens if, if somebody... <laughs> you want to see something funny? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going the right way or not. That's you sound like a blind person. <laughs> How would you feel if you went to jail? What what would you do? Try to break out. Just keep on punching the walls. <laughs> and then if you do it to the back. Three. <laughs> make you fly? Can you fart on your head? All cause of donuts. Do you ever wish that you had longer arms? How many dead bodies have you seen? What cause your toothbrush? Wow, I've never been asked that question. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you if you felt like you wanted to be different or would you rather just be like normal, like born a girl? Uh, I didn't really have that choice. Do you think that police officers across the nation are treating different races fairly? I hope so. Did you like take a drug and then go higher and higher up the... Yeah, so I started with weed um, and drinking, then got into like the powders, like ecstasy and all that. Did you feel good when you did it? Yeah, to be honest, I did. Have you ever lost your hair when you had cancer? The tips of my fingers, every one except my pinky, had to be amputated. Oh, so that's why you're missing oh, yeah. fingers? Yep, exactly. So I have one fingernail left. Right here on my pinky. Ooh, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> because I have Tourette's, my brain makes up for it giving me like a photographic memory. So that's good <laughs> that you have that. Yeah. That's a good Are you happy? Yeah, I get to inspire people. I get to share my story. You still look beautiful when you're small. Thank you. How do you say it was nice to meet you? Wipe your hand like that to meet. Meet you. Yay! The storyteller in Acts of Acts writes in the Gospel of Luke that we are to be like little children. 
And after watching this video, it's easy to see why. Kiddos have this natural ability to let go of boundaries, to look at someone different from them and to ask questions and to learn something new about them. These kiddos have the ability, many of them, to look at someone new and think, yay, new friend. And imagine how much more colorful and vibrant and meaningful life could be if we sit around a table surrounded by people who are so different from us. I think that this is what Act 6 is trying to tell us. It's trying to tell us that the embodiment of this spirit means that we open ourselves up to people, to loving people that other humans, void of the spirit, would instinctively shun. I think Act 6 is trying to tell us to bring more chairs to the table and to wait on more tables because recognizing that these activities is part of the gospel is so important. If we are to call ourselves gospel people, if we are to claim that the Holy Spirit is embodied in our community, then we have a responsibility to care for the people in our community who are struggling. Maybe this looks like a literal waiting on tables as we collect donations for baskets, holiday baskets that our client services will pass out. Maybe it looks like attending to the housing crisis here in Riverside. 5,000 housing units short. What will our community here in Ward 7 in the 92505 do to support putting a roof over people's heads? Maybe it looks like insisting that this sanctuary truly is a sanctuary for all sorts of people. What a novel idea. Maybe it looks like giving a phone call or sending a text to a loved one you haven't talked to in a really long time. Maybe it looks like lending a listening ear to someone who is in need of some extra support. Maybe it's like giving a hug with consent to someone who is in extra need of some physical affection. Embodying the spirit looks like a community that makes sure that no one is forgotten. And partnership with the spirit looks like pulling up more seats, serving the tables, and serving people because we recognize that those are gospel activities. Amen.